I'm Jewish Dave. And I'm in a fucking hotel room. And I'm in a fucking hotel room. No, you say this. Oh, that's okay. okay. No, but I am in a hotel room. This is ridiculous. This shows, by the way, my commitment and your lack thereof. Well, I'm 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 not traveling. I I haven't given you know. I you had... should first of all be traveling right now. Second Why? of all, when you do travel, you should be like that. Shouldn't be a blackout time for Bird Road. You should be like, hey, I have a hotel room. I have a quiet corner where I can turn the air conditioner off. Yeah, but I don't have that that sweet, sweet all points west Wi-Fi account in in every hotel I stay in. What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Doesn't it still cost like thirty dollars a minute for Wi-Fi in hotels in America? No, there's in here at the West. I don't. You know what? Let me cut it out. I'm not gonna say. I'm not gonna you know <laughs> plug for free a hotel chain that I happen to stay at all the time. They can they can pay me to stay if they want me to plug it. Uh huh. Um, but it's the way it is these days, and I think it's with most places. It's free Wi-Fi, and then like fifteen dollars a day enhanced Wi-Fi. Ooh, which is, there you go. Which the trick there is, you only ever travel for work, and then work pays for it. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. I, a, I don't have a, I don't have a work that pays for things. So. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you want to uh, be my work queue. Nah, nah, maybe. Nah. <laughs> One day I will. One day I'll, I'll be that work for you. Yes. I'll put in that work. Put in that work. So uh, so what are we doing today? What's going on? What's, go, what's going on over and piecing it together quick before we... I, I saw Spider-Man last night. Yeah, I'm going it's to see it this afternoon. It's insane to me, not to throw shade at whoever you have booked for the Spider-Man episode, uh-huh. but it's insane to me that you have me at your disposal, the world's foremost Spider-Man expert, and you choose not to have me on let it, for let, Spider-Man Let shows. the record show that when someone requested to be the guest on Spider-Man, I said, hold on, I have to ask my best friend Q. And then I, oh, went, and really? a- then I went and asked you, and you said, yeah, no, this. you should have them on. And- I don't <laughs> <laughs> I guess in like the intervening weeks, I got like way more excited about Spider-Man. <laughs> Maybe I just wasn't that excited about it. Yeah, we'll, um, be, we'll be recording an episode later this week, actually with the hosts of uh, the Great Albums podcast, which is actually a great podcast that I actually listen to. Um, so they're going to be on for that one. And uh, we just put up an episode on Ari Aster's Midsummer. And then, of course, the other. Oh, big, you saw that already? Yeah, I got to actually. Should ju- I see it or no? Should I see it or no? If Did you like Hereditary? I haven't seen Hereditary. Oh, okay. Well, it, it's it's nuts. It's absolutely a crazy, crazy movie. Uh, it's also pretty slow. It's also pretty... It's one of those movies that's going to get an F cinema score, but film people are going to love it. You know what I mean? Um, it, it's very strange, and I enjoyed it. I definitely think people should see it. I saw um, that Jordan Peele really liked it, and what, yeah. what, strikes, what, what struck me when the first trailer came out was how sort of like naively confused all of the characters were who are white uh-huh. were, but like how terrified every character of color was. Like every, every character that was like slightly brown or black in every in every scene in the trailer was like, get me the fuck out of here. Yeah. And meanwhile, they show the, the girl from um, 
from a good little soldier or whatever that was mm. whatever that was called or tin tin soldier i forget what that tv show was but it was a great tv show but they show her and she's just like huh what's going on here this isn't this isn't as fun as i thought it was this doesn't seem so, right at all this doesn't seem right at all maybe i should complain um <laughs> well yeah so. yeah it, it's definitely worth seeing and uh josh bell joined me for that one and speaking of josh bell today is the launch of awesome movie year our new podcast on the all points west network um, the first episode is live wherever you listen to podcasts and it's on. Yeah, make sure you subscribe to Awesome Movie Year on yeah. the All Points West Network, anywhere podcasts are available. Josh Bell, uh, also our friend of the podcast, Jason Harris. That's right. Both chopping it up, going year by year. You see that they did that for, um, damn, somebody just launched a thing like that for, uh, but it wasn't a podcast. It's like a. I don't know. I, fuck, I'm, I'm lost. I is it a 1999 thing? Because there seems to be a lot happening. A with million 1999 things out there right now. Yeah, for sure. But and and what's funny is like every every week, somebody there's like a post on there's like traction or whatever on uh, social media where they're like, 20 years ago today, Fight Club came out and stuff, and you're just like, wow. What yeah. a baller ass year for <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 1999 was crazy, and we will eventually get to 99 on Awesome Movie Year, but because of the uh, the uh, all of the attention this year, we wanted to start with something different. So we're doing 94, which also yeah, why, is why an draft, awesome movie year. Why draft off of something super popular that would get you lots of hits and, and attention? Why not do something completely different that no one's talking about? Really good idea, Dave. Because we want original, interesting <laughs> content, right? That's what it is. So. Clearly, you've never worked in a newsroom. <laughs> <laughs> Pump out the exact same thing now. <laughs> we want that. More boats. More boat movies. Quick. Can we make more boat yeah. movies. Jaws and Titanic? Fuck. We need more boats. Um so look, uh, we're gonna jump into an interview that I did last week with Amy Westervelt, who's the um, the host of Drilled, which is a I mentioned this on the episode last last week, but uh, I managed to get Amy to sit down with me in um, in Little Havana and talk, you know, just about environment. And this was on the day in between the two presidential uh, debates, the presidential Democratic primary debates mm. that were in Miami. So we sat down, we had a conversation on. I guess it would have been. Thursday morning, yeah, because the Wednesday, it was Wednesday and Thursday, and we were only hours away from the second debate. So just understand in context that we hadn't heard the second debate when we had this interview, which we're going to um, get to in a moment. But I know that our fans probably want to hear from us what our opinions and our takeaways were from the, the, the Democratic debate. Mm-hmm. Relatively sure you didn't watch either of them. I actually um, did watch uh, part of each. <laughs> so I realize also in a moment of like sort of self-reflection that I probably am not doing the best job as a manager setting you up for success, giving you to- the tools mm-hmm. that you need to succeed. Mm-hmm. So what I thought was, why don't we go through a list of a few of the Democratic uh, debaters, people who were up on the stage, not the losers who poll at like less than who poll at negative percentages where people like go out of their way to say, I don't want to vote for that person. (laughs) They tear the page up. (laughs) Um, I I love this page that you think is the way that polling works. Like like where is a, it was a bit, it It was a bit, where's a physical page. (laughs) So rather than that, I thought, where can I find some intersectionality with my best friend? Mm -hmm. And what I want to do is I want you to ask me, just a selection, we don't have to take this too long, just maybe like 10 or so of them, of these debaters. And I'm going to tell you, 
based on their performance, who they were in different what, what movie characters they were mm. through history. Oh, that's okay. gonna be fun. I like it. Okay, so um, I furnished you with a list of people who I sort of have some ideas about, and we'll see if I can if I can uh, peg them to their Hollywood counterparts. And just to be uh, clear, before I start reading, I'm not even 100% sure all these are real names, but I will read them anyway. Uh, <laughs> I'm not sure either. I would say that most, like, I, if you ask most Democratic voters, obviously they're not sure either. Like, most of these people probably don't exist. Yeah. They're probably, you know, parts of a, um, you know, some sort of uh, simulation that's, meant, <laughs> that's just meant to generate Twitter jokes or something like that. Yeah. All right, well, let's kick off this list. Uh, the first one is Eric Swalwell. Eric Swalwell. Eric Swalwell is, well, first of all, just for, again, he's one of these people that, that, that like, nobody, <laughs> a lot of these people, people don't know who they are. They literally, like, don't know I have know not heard they're... this one. Yeah, I have no yeah. idea. He's a, he's a congressman from California, the 15th Congressional District, um, mm-hmm. and he's a relatively young guy. So Eric Swalwell, in my estimation, is uh, he's James Vanderbeek in Varsity Blues because he gave like a really meandering, pointless speech about how old people suck, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah. So in that case, he was he was talking about Joe Biden, um, but in the case of James Vanderbeek, in uh, <laughs> in the case of James Vanderbeek, obviously he gave a speech about how much um, uh, the coach who who's the coach? Uh, what's your name's dad? Uh, John Voight, right? John Voight. He gave a, yeah. a speech about how much John Voight sucks because he's old. Well, that's and, that's true, actually. <laughs> I mean, they both they both literally <laughs> suck. So that's you know again spot the lie. Yeah. All right. Who's so next, uh, next up is John Delaney. So John Delaney, I have him being Paul Rudd in Clueless because everyone knows that he was in it, but no one remembers a thing he said or did in the whole movie. <laughs> I guess I have to vote for John Delaney in the. Uh... <laughs> and he's, uh, he's just cute as a button. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next up is Joe Biden. Uh, this one's easy. Joe Biden is Buddy Christ in Dogma. Next. <laughs> uh, next up is our buddy Bernie Sanders. The boy Bernie. Bernie is Bernie is. St- I think this is a pretty easy one. Um, I had him pegged as uh, Statler and Waldorf from the Muppet movies. <laughs> Because he's just like constantly criticizing the general state of things, and uh-huh. he's he's also never wrong. He's right. always right about his criticism. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, next up is Gina's favorite, Tulsi Gabbard. So Tulsi Gabbard is um, a little more of an obscure, not an obscure character. This movie made like probably like half a billion dollars, but uh, Jen Yu, who was the character from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, who was sort of like the hero, a noble warrior. Um, who was like a, the moral backbone of the movie, but turns out at the end to have been evil the whole time. And I think so because I'm, I'm pretty sure that Tulsi Gabbard is a crypto fascist who just kind of gets a pass from a lot of people because of like high aesthetics. And uh, yeah, so mm. that's what Tulsi is. Academy Award winning film. So uh, she could be good. Uh, next up, Elizabeth Warren. That one's like a little too easy because it's very trite to call, to just say that Elizabeth Warren is Tracy Flick from Election. <laughs> but Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren is Tracy Flick from Election. Nice, I like it. Uh, Kamala Harris. Um, all right, so let's do lightning round. Let's kind of speed this up. Kamala is Denzel in Training Day. John Hickenlooper. John Hickenlooper is a Morton Joe. <laughs> Pete Buttigieg. 
Pete Buttigieg is the um, the evil nerd in the back of the van in Die Hard. Are you impressed? I knew how to say his name. No. Okay. Cory Booker. Uh, Cory Booker is the kid that blows out his knee in um, fucking uh, uh, not any given Sunday. What's the movie with the, with the uh, Friday Night Lights? He's, oh, okay. he's the kid that blows. Cory Booker is the kid that blows out his knee in um, in, in Friday Night Lights. <laughs> uh, Jay Inslee. Jay Inslee is Super Dave Osborne. <laughs> Marianne Williamson. Marianne Williamson is the best friend in any Nora Ephron movie. No, you know who she is? She's, uh, uh, what, what's her name from 30 Rock? Uh, and, uh, and, uh, inside, uh, what is oh, it? Oh, Jane Krakowski. Jane She's Krakowski. any Jane Krakowski character, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's any Jane Krakowski character with, like, maybe 20% more ability to grift. <laughs> I just want to say, Marianne, I love Mary Williamson. <laughs> she's she rules. She's probably my favorite character. My favorite character. My, my favorite, favorite character. My favorite character. <laughs> yeah, no, you know what? I stand by it. She's my favorite character running for president. Uh, all right. And uh, lastly is uh, Julian Castro. Julian Castro. Julian. Could be, he could be literally either one of the, uh, either one of the twins from The Shining. <laughs> Let's get to the interview. So, yeah, welcome to Miami, I suppose. Um, <laughs> so hot here. <laughs> we're acclimating to the heat. I'm joined by Amy Westervelt, who is the host of the Drilled podcast, which if you're not listening to it, you should be listening to it. Episode uh, Season three, first episode of season three just dropped on, I think yesterday, right? Yep. Yeah, and yeah. I, I was lucky enough to be there Minutes for it. Minutes before the debate, because it took me forever. <laughs> it was debate. It was debate focused. Um, so if you don't know what the podcast is, and uh, again, I recommend that you listen to it. It's basically positioning a topic that we talk a lot about on this show, which is the um, the, the climate crisis that we find ourselves in, and putting it in that so uh, ascendant um, uh, genre of true crime which is a fascinating way to look at it and is really fun and engaging and it keeps you going. And it's um, the thing that we talk about a lot on this show is the uh, the fatigue you can get from sort of consuming this kind of news. Yeah. And uh, yeah, this is fatigue free, but incredibly informative. But it made me think that it's very procedural. It's kind of like almost like Law and Order. Yeah. And in Law and Order. That's the idea I had for it. <laughs> yeah, because like, yeah. In Law and Order, they always have generally within the procedural structure they have that one moment where the victim gets to sort of face the person that killed their son or whatever they the victim impact yes. moment right yes if there was a victim impact moment the person sitting in that seat would be miami i think because yeah. we are probably the most affected in the near term by a lot of the 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 things that that, that you cut co- that you cover what i guess what what is your take on on the faces, the victims of, of what these oil companies have done in terms of like, we're seeing already, we just walked that block and a half, we're pouring sweat yeah. <laughs> here. Yeah. Uh, what are some other manifestations like that that you've seen and um, that have sort of caught your eye during your, I guess, year and a half of, of working on this, these, these uh, two complete seasons of, of the podcast? Yeah, um, well, I mean, I think, of course, in all the coastal places, you're seeing sea level rise, what and most often extreme heat 
too, and hurricanes, more intense storms, all that stuff. We're actually doing, um, we're actually taping a series in Hawaii next month, which is um, also sinking rapidly into the ocean, and they're doing a whole managed retreat thing of like trying to move people away which from the shore. Which is a topic I want to talk to you about too. Like, yeah, yeah, like, yeah, but in that case, they have a lot less land to retreat to. Um, and you're so, you're also seeing a ton of, you know, you see these, you see all of the inequality patterns repeating themselves as as we start to sort of adapt to climate change too. So in the Hawaii example, you know, there's a ton of attention being paid to moving people from the coast inland who have money or the resort businesses or whatever, and then you've got people in areas that aren't super touristed or high value um, that like don't even know it's happening <laughs> you know and I feel like you see that here too yeah. like you see this um, this huge emphasis yeah, on it's the boiled for a lot of Miami's a very poor place and I know that, yeah. that there's a lot of poverty in Hawaii too but yeah. like Miami similar to similar to Hawaii in that there's um, a veneer of wealth and yes. a veneer of resources and a veneer of, of opulence actually the reality is we're, we're, we're here on West Flagler on 17th Avenue and most of Miami's like this. Yes. It, which is, you know, low income, living day to day. And it's kind of that boiled frog thing where I think most of the people who are existing in the city are just kind of noticing these incremental erosions to their quality of life. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I, I, I guess the one thing that bothers me the most was that... Um, and we can talk a little bit about the content of, of, the, of your live episode that you did the other night. Yeah. But uh, I've noticed, specifically last night was the first round of debates. Tonight is going to be the second round of debates. By the time you're hearing this show, uh, the debates have already happened. The first round, of, the first set of debates have already happened. And there were a few Miami-specific questions. Um, and for some reason, they get veered away. Yeah. And I'm spe- thinking specifically of uh, your guest, Governor, uh, Governor Inslee. Inslee, who... Yeah was asked specifically what is your plan to help save Miami and he went back to one of his more comfortable the filibuster the, yeah taking the filibuster away <laughs> from know. Mitch McConnell um, I, know. I don't know what are you what what are your thoughts on uh, on the I guess kind of losing the forest for the trees do you see that happening a lot with folks who are yes. trying to be part of the solution yeah yeah I mean well first of all I think no one last night had the courage to say in fact there won't there will be parts of Miami that will not be saved. We have already committed ourselves to a path of two degrees warming, and that's a best case scenario. Um, I think like people, especially politicians, and I guess it's hard for them because it's kind of what they do, but they really need to stop lying to people. Um, I think people need to be aware of what is actually at stake. And for me, like there's been a lot of talk. I'm working on a on a story right now called The Case for Climate Rage because I keep seeing all these essays come out that are very like sort of nihilistic or, you know, are making the case for climate alarm or very focused on fear and anxiety. And I understand all of those feelings. But I also feel like uh, people need to get really fucking angry because there are going to be people who lose their homes and lose their lives. And that is expressly because other people decided that they wanted to make money. And that's it. Let's talk about that because that's sort of the the central thesis of your show. We're talking about the the larger issue of climate change right now, but your show is 
unique in that you and your reporting is unique in that you look, you make a case for recovery. You make a case for, for, you know, uh, uh, rec- recompensation yeah. of people who have, uh, who are going to ultimately be the losers in this entire situation. And uh, shocking, of course, it's people who are poor, people who are at risk. Usually people of color. Usually yeah. people of color, particularly in this community. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I guess, tell us where at the end of season two of this, where are the different venues where, like, give us a, give us a, a sort of 10,000 foot view of where the different venues are judicially yes. that these um, cases, these types of cases are moving forward, yeah. the prospect and like where the heat is, like the yeah. heat map of that. Yeah. So first of all, I want to say that um, the thing that like always gets to me about climate change is that like we know how to solve it. We're, there's just a lack of like will to do it. You know, there's a lack of political will. There's a lack of... I don't know. There's a, a lack of social will. You know, there's a, a, a lack of interest on behalf of like a few powerful people to want to change the structure in which they are succeeding. You know, yeah. um, but on the legal front, there are there are a few different cases. So there's a there's a whole batch of what they call climate liability cases, where they're basically using tort law and nuisance law to say that you know oil companies knowingly. Um, let their product inflict damage on people. So, like the you know nuisance laws basically say, if you know that your product is going to cause this type of, of damage, you need to be alerting people. And if you know that in this case your product could contribute to the end of the world, you should really be announcing that. And instead, they hid that information and obfuscated it and spun it in various ways, and you know delayed and delayed and delayed to the point we're at now. Um, So those cases are saying, we can use nuisance law to hold companies accountable for their, the percentage, the percentage that they're responsible for of climate change. So there's like, there's this emerging field of climate science called attribution science, where they have um, pinpointed that, you know, a hundred companies are responsible for the vast majority of CO2 emissions. And so these cases are saying, okay, we want you to pay your percentage of that. These are mostly happening in state venues, state on the state level. It's actually state, county, and city. So, and the reason not federal specifically because ten years ago there were cases brought at the federal level, and they got booted out um, because of the so-called political question, which we heard about in the voting rights decision today. So this idea that well, you're trying to take to the courts for something that really should be decided by Congress. So the same attorneys, in fact, are bringing a lot of these state and local cases now because they have been looking at state tort law and they're like, okay, actually, we can bring these in state court and they, if they stay there, then we don't run into this political question problem. And so far, I think it's... So, of course... Uh, the oil companies have appealed all these cases and said that they should be in federal court because they know that they'll win there. So far, about six of them have been kicked back to state court. So so mostly the district court judges are saying, no, actually these are state cases, which the oil companies don't want to hear because really they want to get, they don't want to go into discovery because if they get into discovery, then, then you get more documentation more comes <laughs> out. Yeah. So if they get into the dis- to discovery, if any of these survive the motion to dismiss, you're going to see oil companies trying to settle them because they don't want people in their records. So, uh, you now, know, it, it, in your that that brings up this question that I have, which is I think about 
Mark Ruffalo in um, oh God, what's the name of the Mark Ruffalo movie? The uh, the Boston Globe movie. Um, oh, Spotlight. Spotlight. Yeah. I think about Mark Ruffalo in Spotlight, and I think about that sort of overacted. They knew, they knew moment, and I'm wondering if yeah. if you've had that, like uh, a moment where you you there's you you, you obtain so much damning documentation um, and report it in in the course of, of your series, but I'm just wondering if there was any one thing or maybe a few things where you're like god damn this is ridiculous that yeah. this memo was circulating and yeah they knew like to that to that point yeah there's a there's a few of them i mean one there's a um there are quite a few reports that were commissioned by the american petroleum institute in the 60s that were indicating this stuff so that was surprising to me because i had sort of known about the exxon memos from the 70s and 80s um and those are also very damning. I mean, like the year I was born, an Exxon scientist was saying, you know, I'm 41. The Exxon scientist was saying, hey, in five to 10 years, we're going to have to make some hard decisions about where we get our energy from or else like we're going to have some catastrophic impacts, you know? So like the, the idea that 40 years ago, and you then, know, yeah. people were, I mean, it's literally, the thing that really drives me crazy is, so I was in, I was at the Stanford Library a couple months ago researching, reading many, many piles of Chevron shareholder magazines, because <laughs> they have like a whole stash of them there, <laughs> and it was just amazing, because I was like, wow, you know. Just some light reading, yeah. <laughs> I know, but it, it's like, you know, they're talking about like alternative fuels, and there's, you know, even in there, there was one of their economists in the, in the late 90s was saying you know or no in the early 90s was saying the 90s are going to be the decade of global warming this is like it's here now it's you know we're going to have to deal with it and fortunately we've invested in all these alternative fuels um you know but we probably have about another 10 to 15 years worth of fossil fuels right this was like the chevron economist in their shareholder magazine saying like okay like and it's so funny that the that the <laughs> this is over now. And the, then you the political can see that, like, construct wasn't there for that to even be a um, a controversial thing at no, that moment. No, it's totally non-controversial. It, not yeah. like it would be today or even ten no. years ago. No, I mean George Bush, George Bush Senior, on the campaign trail was talking about global warming and how we were going to solve it. And for a long time, Republicans were on board with this as both like sort of the next step in their history of conservation, the Teddy Roosevelt wing of the party and all that, but also as like this American innovation can solve it kind of right. thing. You know, like that was the take. We're going like, oh, to figure this out. We figured out worse things in we're the past. We're great engineers and da 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 whatever. And then now it's like, court, well, court cases, I do just want to say one more thing about, there's because there's stuff that's not liability cases too. So there's like the liability cases of which there are 16 now. Most are by um, county, city, states. One is by a uh, trade association. This is the crab fishermen that I did season two on and yeah. drilled. And um, and then you have the Juliana case, which is like the, the kids that are suing the government. And this gets misreported a lot as for not acting on climate. But what they're actually suing them for is for, um, in fact, subsidizing inaction on climate. You know, that they they were like subsidizing roads and fossil fuels and all these things. And that's happening in like Oregon, right? Or, that's Oregon, yeah. yeah. And <clears throat> that has come up against several 
attempts by the Trump administration to squash it, and they have won all of those. The, the, the U.S. district judge in Oregon wants to try this case. So it keeps kind of passing these hurdles, but we'll see if it, if it goes forward. And in that case, she, the lawyer who's bringing that is a woman named Julia Olson, and, and she's kind of banking on getting around this whole political question because she's actually suing the government. So you can't say, well, Congress should regulate this when you're saying, well, it was like the government failing to do its job appropriately, you know. Um, So we'll see what happens with that case. And then there has been some talk of bringing a RICO case, so like a racketeering case against um, coal, utilities, oil, because we have documentation. through. There's like hundreds of pages about the Global Climate Coalition, which was coal utilities and oil companies all coming together to come up with how they were going to like message around climate change. Yeah, so it's a criminal conspiracy. It is, in fact, racketeering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we'll see if that actually, if that comes together. Um, but those are the, the sort of legal fronts. I don't know. We'll see. I mean, there's a lot of talk right now about uh, price on carbon, carbon tax, all that stuff, which would be, you know, like, yes, we have to price carbon in some way, but it's just like, I don't know, it goes so far beyond that, you know? I well, feel yeah, like the, like you can tell by the fact that Republicans are starting to come around to the idea of a yeah. carbon tax that, in fact, we need to be doing much more. Right, we're down here, we had, up until he was uh, voted out, we had um, the rarest of rare things, which is that Republican who is allowed to be, you know, pro-climate change policy, and it was uh, yeah. Carlos Corbello who represented um, actually one of the, in, in your literature that you had listed out at, at yeah. your event the other night, Florida Congressional District number 26 okay. was, I think, number fourth or, fourth or fifth in terms of the billions of dollars that it's going to require spending. Yeah. Corbello was representing that district poorly for mm-hmm. um, four years, two terms, and he was ousted by uh, Debbie McCarcel Powell, who's uh, much more on board Democrat with all, everything that we're talking about, all of, all of, all of, all of the above type solutions, person. Right, right. Um, but yeah, in Florida, you will get that rare species. Yeah. That's the Republicans who, for the purposes of getting reelected, are allowed to acknowledge that climate change exists because we're in Miami and you can't deny you it. You can't deny it. Like you drive, you drive anywhere near the ocean and you're like, shit, that ocean's high. Yeah. Like, and gross. And yeah. everything in it is dead. And we're yes. pumping feces into it. And yeah, it's like, uh, yeah. it's it's incredible. I don't know how much of the sights you've had a chance to see around here, but what we've done to the to the beaches in this in, in not just Miami but all around the coast. Yeah. The way that you can the set Everglades. your yeah, and yeah. the way that you can set your watch to red tide and just you know this raft of dead animals that cut that that wash up on the shore every year now, and it's just the cost of doing business it's just the way things are yeah and um i, I want to get back to the concept of, yeah. of denial though yeah um, as you brought you brought that up and i wonder as you looked into this like multi-million dollar pr campaign waged over it was decades. really co- over decades mm-hmm. i wonder what do you think is the thing in the human condition or in the human mind that because yeah why were they doing it we know why it's a very clear immediate material um concern that they were doing it they were trying to do it to continue to be profitable and make money. Right. But what is it in the person, in, in in the mind of, like, I guess about half of America, half of America that pays attention and is engaged, that is ready to to believe or to, to, to sort of take the denialist um, position? Like, why? It just seems, maybe to folks like us, it just seems like 
crazy, but what is it about our, our human spirit that lets us that makes us want to buy these stories? I think there's a few things happening. One is, and this was something that really came out in the second season that we did, was we found several people who um, were able to kind of get on board with holding fossil fuel companies accountable but without ever getting, without ever sort of like admitting that climate change was happening, you know? Which was really interesting to me because I feel, I do feel like a big part of it is this like tribal ideology thing, you know? No one wants to like, I don't know, kind of like cut themselves off from their tribe and say, oh, actually I've read all this stuff and now I believe that climate change is real, that humans are contributing to it, we need to do something about it, blah, 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 you know? Yeah, yeah. They, they don't want to voice that during, you know, you know, the, you know the, the biggest loser or whatever at, right. at home and on the couch. With yeah, their... like it's become so much a part of the conservative identity in a lot of ways yeah. to deny climate change that, um, that there is some amount of like, eh, around that. So a couple of people that we talked to, their way around that was to really focus on the fairness aspect and like, well, it's really not fair for a company to have information that they are acting on themselves. So in this case, the fossil fuel companies were changing how they designed ocean oil platforms and they were getting patents to go and drill in a melting Arctic and all of this stuff at the same time that they were telling everybody else not to worry about it. So there's a sort of like, oh, well, that's not fair. Like, we should all at least have the same information and be making, like, decisions based on that. And then <clears throat> there's the private property side. Yeah, that's always which, resonant. Yeah, Yeah, like, you're starting to see, actually, the Niskanen Center, which is a libertarian legal think tank, has come out in favor of these climate liability suits because of the private property component. Right. That it's not, it's just not fair for one company to make a decision that impacts several citizens' private property, right. you know, for their own benefit and whatever. Um, so there are these little, like, ways out of denial. But, I mean, I think it's, yeah, it's tribal ideology. It's, you know, honestly, I would love to not believe in climate change. That'd be freaking awesome. Like, and the, but the, it's and comforting. De denialism, <laughs> and it's, it's so insidious the way that it took root because... It's iterative. Now, today, yeah. the, the denialism isn't so much that it's happening, but more like... Right. It's more of a... It's natural. Yeah, that. And then there's the other <laughs> one, which is nothing we do matters. It's all about India and China and yes. and, and like and Africa and other emerging global economies. And, yes. It, for, and, and that's actually kind of a, a more nuanced opinion that, that right. does have some merit and needs to be talked about, but is used in place of... Denialism. It's like the next evolution of denialism. Right. It's like these, it's a, yeah, it's it's always basically an excuse to not have to change how we live, you know, and, and also to not have to take responsibility. I do think there's a lot of, like, I've talked to several people who are um, climate psychiatrists or even, like, psychoanalysts who focus on climate grief, which is very interesting, the whole, like sliver of that That's realm. It's really yeah. interesting because their whole thing is like, look, this is actually a trauma and the idea that there are places that we are losing and that there are species that are dying and that um, anyone who's a human in a developed country, you know, has in some way contributed to that. Although I definitely like, I don't ascribe to the whole like, we all did this thing right. that has been kind of floating around. I see that almost as another form of of denialism that it's like it's human nature or like it's because we overconsume or whatever but there is yes we have all like 
you know, consumed fossil fuels. We've all, many people, most people have consumed meat at some time, you know, all of these things. So I, I think there's a little bit of a, um, yeah, of an unwillingness to, to just want to take that on board, you know? And, um, one of the things that like the, the psychology community talks about a lot is just that, you know, you kind of have to give, you kind of have to help people sort of accept that these things are happening and grieve them in order for them to like be able to take any action. Right, and like, yeah. that's, I mean, that's a lot, you know, that's a lot a, to get people to do. Isn't this a Big Little Lies season two? I think it is a subplot actually. <laughs> no, I'm just, a shout just out to my wife who, who watches that I with me. I just watched it last night with like the young, the, like one of the kids has a panic attack because they're talking about climate change. God yeah. Damn it, Amabella. Yeah. <laughs> Amabella, yes. Actually, somebody tweeted, I forget who it was, but somebody tweeted last night, why have they Syme. asked? Yes, yeah, that, I saw that. I know. It was so funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I think about this a lot. I, I think about we were talking before this before we started recording about podcasts that we like as, as a couple yeah. of podcasters, and one of the ones that I had listened to uh, recently was the one about the uh, the not the Golden Gate Killer, but the the original Night Stalker. Right? I forget what the name of the podcast is. Plug to whatever that. Po- it's another one of those wondery, yeah, very yeah, well yeah. produced. You know, sh- um, yeah. The guy's uh, seventy eight now. Right, mm-hmm. and they just through DNA evidence arrested him last year. Yeah, you know, like he's we're gonna, we're gonna the law enforcement is saying we're gonna bring him to justice. It took forever, but we're gonna bring him to justice. We got him now. We got him now. In yeah. my mind, that guy got away with it. He got away with it. And yeah. I think about that in the context of of uh, these oil and energy companies. Like, yeah, okay, we're finally having this conversation, but, but here we stand on the, the precipice. it's literally the same conversation that started 40 years ago. Right. It's so crazy, like, reading like this stuff. they got away with it, you Yeah, know? you like, feel like you're, like, am I, did I, like, walk through a time machine? Like, you read these memos or these, like, you know, communications from oil companies in, in the, you know, 80s and 90s, and you're like, it's literally the exact same point in time that we're at now on this stuff. Yeah, and then the a lot of the resources internally, and you can learn this from from Drill, is uh, were diverted. I guess it was around the mid '80s. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. from that research angle of things to PR, like okay, yes. well let's own the narrative instead because there yes. must have been a point where some quant or yes. somebody who was counting the beans was kind of just came to the conclusion like okay. This whole renewables going into green energy idea construct that we have, it's not going to pay the bills. And yeah. we need to change what our focus is. There's a few. Well, there's a few things that happen. So because this has been sort of an obsession of mine, it's like to figure out, like, what happened? You know, right. so a lot of like the story that's been told so far is that like, oh, like they were on this path and then they changed. I don't think that's quite right. I think that they... I think that they initially thought if we are a part of the research, then we can have more influence on the policy. And then that shifted to actually the best way to ensure that this impacts us the least from a profit perspective is to just squash it all together. Yeah, and own the narrative and kind <laughs> and of like co-opt it and yeah, turn it into exactly, something different. Yeah. Exactly. But there was also stuff happening around commodity prices and oil during this time. You know, you had the oil embargo in 73... And then OPEC came then shortly had, after that, right? Yeah. Right, and then you had a lot of concerns about quote-unquote peak oil in right. the 80s that we were going to run out of oil. And actually, 
The fear about running out of oil is really why oil companies started researching renewables. It wasn't because they gave a shit about It was their own warming. existential problem. It was because they were like, oh, we're going to run out of this resource that is our main profit source. Then that kind of went away and they were like, oh, great. And then actually in those Chevron shareholder things, there were tons and tons of articles about where they were freaking out because the peak oil problem wasn't over. But during the years where that had been a big issue, there'd been so much messaging around energy efficiency that people were using less oil. And they were like, for some reason, we have more oil, but people are still using less of it. Like... (laughs) What do we do? Oh, we got to like encourage them to use more. So this is the thing too that like the oil companies will say, oh, well, we're just supplying a demand. But there's a very clear history of, you know, demand going down and them deliberately working to increase it. I want to shift a little bit because, um, and again, I want to uh, reinvoke a lot of the great conversations that were had, not just by the governor at at your show the other night, but the panel that came afterwards. And I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I'm not just a passive observer in this conversation down here in Miami. I I hold a lot of events. We, our show holds events. We go to a lot of, we have a presence in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. Uh, I listened to your end of Miami. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. That was just, just a week ago. Yeah. Not as professional as yours. Uh, We we were a little bit more, we were in the outside. We were out in these streets, like, you know, (laughs) but um, yeah. Uh, the, The first time that I've ever heard a conversation with uh, that, that, that almost started to touch on the debate that we need to be having in Miami was at your show the other night. Oh, and it good. was when... Oh God, Renita? It, yeah, it was when uh, Dr. Gerard Curado, Jennifer, yeah. it was when Jennifer was talking with, um, with Tom, Tom O'Hara, who yeah. um, media folks down here will remember. He was at the Herald forever, and his byline has been around in South Florida forever, uh, who is now... The I guess the managing editor of he's the editor yeah of, of the Invading Sea Invading Sea which mm-hmm. is a joint uh, work with the three major uh, a joint project between the three major newspapers down here the Palm Beach Post South Florida Sun Sentinel and Miami Herald um, and it was the beginning of this conversation where this Broward County official who is a chief resiliency officer yeah. for for Broward was talking exactly about that resiliency being ready being able to spend the money and spend it smartly and wisely. And uh, Tom brought up the fact that there is some uh, hopelessness to that, right? That in 50 years, Miami and South Florida isn't going to be what it is. It's this resiliency versus managed retreat, which is are two words that nobody has spoken on the record down here in South Florida yet. Really? And it is... The two scariest and yet most boring words. Because, yeah, yeah exactly. It's, 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 Slow motion evacuation. All they see yeah. there, all they see there is an erosion of tax base. Uh, loss of their because their it's such a developer-run city, right? It's, it's yeah. all about development, and it's all about uh, tourism tied to development, right? So, um, where are those? I mean, like from trying to look outside of this little this little place where I live, where where are those conversations actually happening? I mean, are people talking about the fact that beyond just saying like, oh, X amount of billions of dollars of real estate is going to disappear? Right? Are people addressing it like? Uh, like, hey, maybe we should intentionally build elsewhere, create incentives for people to exist in different places, yeah. build a different Miami in the hills of Georgia or something. I don't know. What, yeah. What, it's you have your very, gear to the ground. It's you know? very, very early days. Um, there was the reason we're doing this episode in Hawaii on Managed Retreat is that the state there just came out with an actual, like, very detailed plan around that, which I find very interesting because they are trying to get out ahead of it. Right. 
And what's really important, actually very important for people who are not in positions of power to understand is that like you want to find out where those conversations are happening and get in on them now because otherwise no one's going to include you in them. They're going to let you figure it out on your own and they're going to make sure that all the people who will help rebuild the tax base somewhere else are taken care of. Um, that's the concern that I have when I see, you know, and I get, I understand that states and local governments are cash strapped and they have to like, you know, focus their efforts where they can and, you know, whatever, but there's definitely, you're, you're, it's, it's going to be, and I think Tom O'Hara said this, like it's, it is going to be this sort of very ugly Hunger Games kind yeah, of it's gonna thing. Yeah, it's going to be, dystop- like, the word dystopian gets thrown around a lot, yeah. but it's a, pretty good fit for what this that's that, that moment is going to look it like. It is. So to the extent, like, I, I encourage people all the time to, like, plan their own managed retreat. Right. Because if you were waiting around for the local government to tell you how to do it, yeah. they don't give a shit about you. And in the moment, if you when it happens, if you wait for FEMA to come save you... Uh, Forget it. No. Yeah. Um, did you read, I don't know if you, you probably did, required reading for you, but uh, uh, Jeff Goodell's book, um, The Water Will Come? Yes. Yeah, so, so that book good. focuses a lot on, and especially right in the lead to uh, the, 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 the first chapter focuses on it, what it'll look like in yeah. a city like Miami, specifically in Miami, when the moment comes and it can be a hurricane there's a, or, or any other you know dramatic weather event, but... We have so many existential issues here. Half of our, something like half of our, uh, our, our septic tanks are not functioning yeah. here. And those septic tanks are separated by a few feet of soil, less than a few feet now, uh, of soil from our water supply. And our water supply is separated by less than a few feet of, of aquifer from seawater, sea from yeah. brackish seawater. Yeah. And you're talking about, again, we talked about how this is a poor place hundreds of thousands of people living in poverty in this in, in just in Miami-Dade County you count Broward it's over a million people living below the poverty line yeah and um, I don't know I, I feel like what you're doing with Drilled is so important because for us to the, the conversation here in Miami always goes like there's too much money here somebody will figure it out somebody's gonna come up with a solution yes is it you no not me I mean there's somebody, a very somebody much a pro- yeah a, a good friend of mine just wrote a story I don't know if you saw this story about um, oceanfront real estate in Miami where she went to all the open houses and right. like asked them about sea level rise and she and, got all the, the, and the, the all these line, people the were points. just yeah, yeah like well there's so much money here someone will figure it out yeah. that was the exact approach you know and it's like they might figure it out for themselves but they're not gonna figure it out for you right like and the 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 other prevailing sort of I don't know what you call these I guess they're just sort of soothing mechanisms or like coping mechanisms but yeah. the things that people tell themselves here and I wonder if in, in your reporting you've seen this anywhere else yeah people will look up their house on whatever the local GIS grid is yeah they'll be like oh I'm at seven feet I personally our house my family's house is at seven feet elevation yeah so in your mind you're like oh well I'm good until the year 2200 and <laughs> <laughs> and it's ridiculous because what do you think? You think you're going to be fine while everybody around you is literally dying of like gastrointestinal problems from water supply issues. Yes. And, while, and like while there's, you know, caravans of people 
trying to escape this. You think you're just going to sit there and be fine? No, of course. The, cl- the society's I'm on gonna- a little hill here, so it's <laughs> fine. I know. Well, that was actually like there was an interesting part of that story I mentioned where they were talking about like, oh, it'll be fine because, you know, this building is on stilts. And so therefore, blah, blah, blah. And uh, this one scientist was like, yeah, OK, but the road is at sea level. So how are you going to get anywhere? Yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah. We, um, right. This stuff manifests in, in a lot of weird ways. Like, and I, I'm sure that you studied this too. But when I was a senior in high school, we had it uh, in, in North Carolina. I lived inland, in, yeah. and we had Hurricane Bertha, yeah. which was one of these hurricanes that just started strengthening, 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 and mm-hmm. hit land uh, category three above hurricane, and literally changed the topography of Wrightsville Beach and yeah. uh, and uh, Wilmington and a lot of the, the you know Cape Fear area. Yeah. And the response from the state of North Carolina yeah. when the studying when people started to study what the effect would be of another storm or right. of just naturally rising sea tides what are we going to do about real estate rates how are we are with the insurance rates for, for real estate yeah um, the legislative response to that was to outlaw the process of studying <laughs> <laughs> like to not to not be able to do the studies and I'm just wondering if if, if uh. you've come up against any other things like that, that yeah that I mean you're seeing it at the federal blindness. level right yeah. now right like let's if we just scrub the words climate change from everything then it doesn't ha- it doesn't exist anymore right? right you know if we just don't study it or we're not now like if we have someone else do a you know complementary slash you know contradictory study to the annual climate assessment that says the opposite of what those people say then it's okay because we're just going to all choose to believe this reality instead of that one you know i mean we're very much in this moment right now too right where it's like everyone gets to decide what facts they believe and what reality they choose to live in and whatever but i think i mentioned this Last it's horrifying, night, but it's, like, like, crazy liberating, too. <laughs> it is kind of, yeah. I mean, well, it's very American, too. Like, I, I yeah. wrote a book last year about a very different topic, the history of how Americans think about motherhood and how that impacts policies for women, whether they have kids or not. And one of the things that I kept coming back to in the history was, like, oh, you know, this is all, like, you know, that stuff, this stuff, most of the social ills that we see really kind of come back to this idea that, you know... A, we've broken down the like aristocracy and the hierarchy, so therefore every individual can and should be responsible only to themselves. It's yeah. hugely problematic as a society. <laughs> and B, that like you know a big part of the the uh, Calvinist Puritans who came here was this idea that every single individual's own interpretation of the Bible was yeah. as valid as anyone yeah, else's. Sacrosanct, your own and that yeah. was like that was a, a rejection of like the the bishops and the More pre, you know whatever that yeah. yeah that and and that the sort of fleeing, yeah. yeah and the arist- aristocratic hierarchy in the church that they were fleeing but you see that now where it's like oh everyone's interpretation of whatever is equally as valid as someone who's actually an expert on that subject yeah. you know and it's like in some ways that's democratizing but in other ways it's like how do you govern in that in that kind of a situation you know like how do you come up with a unifying social organizing principle you know um get kanye maybe i don't know i know (laughs) i know i know but yeah i mean you are seeing um yeah that people definitely there are these people who are just like if i just ignore it it's it's not happening right 
And then there's also definitely some magical thinking around like somehow there's some, you know, option Z solution that doesn't require us doing anything and also doesn't cost anything. You know, (laughs) it's like, okay, that's, that doesn't exist. You know, it, it, it kind of transitions me nicely to our, to the next thing I want to bring up with you, which is yeah. a lot of the proposals. Again, we're, we're recording this in the, day, in the day, in between the day of the second debate, so in between yeah. the, the 24 hours, the 20 hours. Part A the, and Part B of part the a first and part B debate. Of the first round. <laughs> yeah. um, you had as a guest, uh, uh, Governor always, Jay, Inslee. Jay Inslee. I always want to call him John Inslee. Yeah. Jay, uh, Governor Jay Inslee from the state of Washington. Yeah. And um, it reminds me of this sort of story where uh, a guy is going and seeing multiple doctors for multiple maladies, multiple medical problems that he's having. Yeah. And all the doctors are prescribing him something different for yeah. each one of his individual symptoms. And that's fine, but they're treating the symptoms. And not and the it turns root out cause. There's, Yeah, there's a larger disease. Yeah. I, I, I read a guy like James Lee, and again, my, my co-host Dave and I have talked about this. I hate busting people's balls when they're doing things that are good in spirit. Yes. But it does feel a bit like, like he's those doctors. Yeah. Sort of. Great policy, great policy, great policy. Let's see what sticks. Let's not worry about how we're going to make it happen. Let's talk about it. Great. That's awesome. I think it's great to talk about them. Yeah. But it, 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 if you're still positioning it around, and this is where my, my DSA and my socialist roots come out. Yeah. If you're still positioning it around a system that um, relies that on capitalism, relies on capitalism, relies yeah. on unbridled growth. And yes. where if, 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 the telltale sign for me is this. When you come and you tell me like a big plank of your climate plan is about um, profits and jobs, yes. I worry about that. Not that it, not that profits and jobs are inherently bad, but you're trying to use them to make this thing happen. It, you're it using boggles the, my mind. You're using. I mean, to me, it's like, how are we going to solve the problem with more of the problem? Right. You yeah. know. <laughs> How how's that gonna work? And even last <laughs> night, I heard this sort of circular rhetoric happening from both Inslee and Warren, and really like everyone on that stage. It was like, well, you know, the U.S. should be solving this because that's gonna create tons of profit and profits and jobs with the green economy. I was like, oh my yeah. god, you guys, <laughs> like, wake the fuck up, you know? We're like, gonna spend our way out of this problem, just like nine eleven. The one part, like, um, the one piece of Inslee's plan that is really like, whoa, is the fourth piece that came out just before our event, which um, a woman who I uh, interviewed actually for the the debates episode, who she started the group Climate Hawks, which is like a grassroots funded pack to elect climate candidates. And she was saying that she had seen an early draft of that part of his plan and that it was called the fuck fossil fuels plan. And I was like, now that I can get behind. behind, Yeah. Yeah. And and it was, it's very like, I mean, he talks about nationalizing parts of the fossil fuel industry to shut them down, which like, I haven't heard any politician say, I've heard a lot of like activists talk about, but I've never heard a politician say he talked about uh, pollution fee on all fossil fuel companies. So not just a carbon tax and not just like a, and nothing tied to market mechanisms, just like a flat There's out some freedom. fine, like a fine. There's like, some freedom at polling 1%. Exactly. I, yeah, I think, I you think can... that's it. Like he's come out with this like very radical plan because he's like, well, fuck it. Like I might as well say what I really think we should do. Right. I don't have to play politics now. And I wish that like that guy would show up to the debates. Right. Cause I'm like, no one needs another white guy in a suit. 
with like the same platitudes about the same, like yeah, exactly. yeah and be like oh we ought to get rid of Donald Trump da, da, da. and like one of his um, campaign people was telling me that they have they had sort of an internal conversation in the campaign about because he at a press conference was talking about some part of his plan and he was starting to get angry and he said like oh I'm starting to get angry I should rein it in and they were trying to just they were talking amongst themselves like is it good or bad if he gets mad and I'm like dude fucking let him get mad mad. that would make him stand out and like he should be mad we should all be mad this is like if he's going to be the climate candidate I 100% want him to be mad yeah the climate candidate should be that should be part of the brand book of the the it should be corporate accountability that's the other thing I was like Elizabeth Warren where the fuck are you on corporate accountability for fossil fuels like that is your brand well come on it's not like she founded an agency specifically about uh, (laughs) corporate (laughs) devoted specifically hello yeah like I was shocked just I mean like you extracted a lot out of what I think was hardly anything it was seven minutes seven minutes of climate change talk and this after two two and a half now three years of of uh, sunrise movement and yeah all of well that not just that but i mean yeah. it was the yeah i mean there's been so much movement but um i mean there was no mention in the 2016 debates virtually none of, yeah and That's that true. famously now mm-hmm. and that it wait that it, it got relegated to this the, the, the topic got relegated to this backbench i mean behind deprioritized behind things like Iran not even Iran today but the Iran deal like the Iran deal from five years ago yeah and and and, and people were getting like fired up about that I'm like why are like how you know and oh that's the whole thing of it being like kind of ghettoized to this like three part you know three question section an hour and a half into the debate and you know two of those questions were the sort of like but how are you going to pay for it thing yeah. no one pushed back on that and said how are you going to pay for rebuilding paradise california right. how are you going to pay for all the millions of people that are going to be displaced from miami right. you know yeah. like that the, the, is such an easy response to that such question such a low-hanging fruit response it, it should it, it should be doctrine by now or it should just be dogma yes. like you you that's that should be the canned yeah. response by the the, the furthest yeah. right of the democrat candidates should yes. have that in their back pocket should be like well i believe blah, blah, like well you're gonna have to pay for you know disaster relief i mean honestly it's like even just recently you know you could drop the like disaster um response numbers from just the last three natural disasters you know or the disaster mitigation funding for at the uh for fema you know like it goes back to this thing where um i feel like they uh there there was a lot of sort of um god i'm I'm looking for the right term the the right word for it but but pandering is really the word that comes to pandering there's a lot of pandering pandering. to middle america Mm -hmm. and a lot of if you live in a city area and you I, i there were six or seven candidates immediately that I could, not knowing much about politics, immediately write off watching that debate because what they were basically saying was things that are happening in cities, things, things that are happening in coastal areas don't fucking matter. Yeah. All that matters to me is my, I forget who it was, I think it was Klobuchar. Ohio. My, my, my uncle with the... Minnesota. Yeah, Ohio and Minnesota. And it's like, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, there's like lighter population. Well, even Ohio is a huge, has some huge cities in it, larger cities. Mm-hmm. But... I don't. It, it's it's that pandering yeah. that leads to a topic like climate change being relegated. I think. Well, and also, I mean, I think. Well, a, I feel like yes. I, I don't. I, 
I totally reject this idea that Democrats, in order to like break away from the coastal elite, you know, label, have to now forget coastal people to get like make basically the opposite mistake in the other direction and overcorrect and whatever, right. which they've been doing for you know, it's like the, been the Trump apology tour for two years. I can't imagine years, any candidate you know? ever talking about Alabama the way that that so many different candidates on the on the right talk about California or New yes. York. I can I can never imagine it. Instead yes. they pander to it. It's, yes. it's crazy. Yeah. But also I think um, there are huge climate change impacts all throughout the Midwest too. And there again I'm like, why weren't they talking about the towns that have been flooded out? Or even better how it's affecting agriculture all throughout the Midwest. There are tons of farmers that are being put out of business by climate change right now. And those stories barely break through in, yeah. the, in the general, you know, media. That would media. love to have, instead of a subsidy for growing a crop that they can't actually effectively grow anymore, a subsidy for, like, doing carbon capture in the soil or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, I just, I don't know. I feel like even talking about, like, farm subsidies and how they subsidize you know, concentrated animal farming and how problematic that is for climate. Like, there's so many avenues into climate change on all of those issues that, like, I don't know. This whole, I I feel like they did, they really reinforced, and this is the moderators as much as the candidates, they really reinforced this idea that climate change is a coastal problem. Right. That it's a niche problem. Yeah, or a a, a problem of, like, a duality. And then it has a specific policy solution. You know, it's like, no, this is going to require massive social and economic change. And it is going to bring massive social and economic change, whether we plan for it or not. Like the, the, the option isn't change or not change. The option is have a little bit of control over the change or just like buckle up for the ride. So let's talk about what's going to come in season three. Can you okay. give people a little bit of a, yeah. a preview of um, what the contours of season three are going to be about? Of, yeah. Of Drill? So we're doing we're doing a whole uh, series around the different candidates and their takes on climate and all of that. Mostly just because I felt like even the the papers that are covering that in some way are mostly putting like non climate reporters on it. So it's a little bit like light on that. And then um, we're in the process of oops sorry we're in the process of. Um, researching three more investigative series. So one of them I can't totally talk about, but it will be in Puerto Rico. I can tell you that okay, much. Good, good to hear. <laughs> um, the That's other one, <laughs> yeah, the other one is um, looking is another historical season. So I've been calling this my Mad Men season because it's looking at there's a, a group of people who really kind of started like the modern corporate PR system. And, and also because were, you've been drinking scotch at nine in the morning when you work. I do like to drink scotch any time of day. It's true. Um, and also, they were um, they were all trained by U.S. Army intelligence in like psyops, <laughs> and several of them were like were in World War II working on propaganda. Essentially, like they we like the military trained them in propaganda, and then like they put that to work for various industries. Um, It's very interesting. And like, I just, I feel like it's important for people to understand like how, how far back this goes and how intentional it was that like the, the things that you believe were mostly planted in your head. 
by people with a very specific agenda, usually tied to power and profit. You know, like this whole idea, and a lot of them too, because for the reason this the whole thing came about was that I was like, I kept coming back to like, there are definitely points in the oil company's history where it just, it, like, it stopped making sense from a profit perspective. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And it just started to be sort of ideological in a way. And it's like, what was going on there? And then I started digging and digging, and I was like, oh, okay, and I get it now. A lot of these folks really believe that democracy equals capitalism. Right. America equals capitalism. So protecting private profits is protecting democracy right. in their minds. Yeah, you the know? two are like the two are inextricably linked in their yeah. mind. Yeah. To to take to, to to remove that ability, or to even impede it a little bit, is yes. to basically like deconstruct the country and in yeah. their minds. And, and to and to reverse this history of the individual before the the public always is un-American in their minds. And then to find out that they were all military people too, who literally went to war for those ideas. Then I'm like, okay, that makes more sense. It was actually like, you can kind of plumb, plumb the depths of their intentions a little bit. Yeah. uh, You know, if you, if you look enough at, you know, well, and some of them were doing, like we have some documentation of um, interviews with some of them, uh, some notes from like experiments that they were doing in the military, which is very interesting. Um, yeah. So anyway. So our guest today was Amy Westervelt. You can follow her on Twitter at Amy Westervelt, and uh, you can also find her excellent reporting on Drilled, which is I guess everywhere that. Po- no, it would be yeah. funny if it was just like only in one place where podcasts. <laughs> are but no, it's not. It's in. It's it's everywhere that it's podcasts. Only on are my blog. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Amy, thanks for coming to Bird Road. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, we're back from the interview. Dave, um, what should people know hey, going into this week, going into next week? What's hap- what's, what's crapping? People should know that we, uh, we got a couple more Piecing It Together episodes coming up, but we have a whole lot more awesome movie years also coming up, so check out both of those podcasts. I mean, like, what else? Like, what's going on with you? Oh, I don't know. Uh, I'm working on music for a film and, uh, you know, just trying to uh, do what I do, man. Trying to get by just to get high, just to get la. I feel, I feel like our our heads bumping up and down on, on Google Hangouts should uh, definitely be something people get to see. But that's, too, ba- too bad that's for subs- them. That's subscriber content. Yeah. That's going on our Patreon, which is going to launch soon, maybe. Oh, the last the last thing I wanted to talk about is I want to tell you this is some <laughs> this is some great great watching, I should say. Um, uh-huh. The New York Times opinion section tweeted out today, like two days before the Fourth of July, tweeted out. This is the tweet. I'll just read it. It's a it's a company with a four minute video. And it's the here's here's the text of the tweet. The myth of America as the greatest nation on earth is at best outdated and at worst wildly inaccurate. If you look at the data, the US is really just okay. And it's followed by like, I mean, a pretty straightforward video. And um, yeah, it's just I, I just think it's a li- like reading through the comments, yeah, the replies to this video to this uh tweet. Yeah. It um <laughs> It just it's like salve for your soul. Like I recommend, not just watching the four minute video. It's it's good, but it's n- no news. I mean, it's stuff that 
those of us who are like kind of progressive or whatever, we we this is all stuff that we already know that that gets kind of laid out in the video, right? Of why why America kind of like is definitely not the greatest nation in the world. <laughs> um, so, but but what again? What's fun? is to read the comments yeah. and to read the replies. You, that actually reminds me, I did want to uh, mention something to you, uh, something that's been kind of making me laugh. I hate trolls and trolling and all that stuff on- online, but something that has actually been making me laugh is watching on Facebook as all these major brands on July 1st switch their logo back to just a regular logo without a rainbow and it gets all these haha reactions on Facebook. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, it's so fucking obvious. And it's like <laughs> I think it was um I think it was Amber Frost from uh from Chapo Trap House who was like, whatever, uh Fourth of July is has always been a way gayer holiday anyway. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs>